Well, good evening to you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to get to speak to you tonight. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, I'm going to start by sharing uh, a little of my personal testimony, and then uh, I'll be speaking to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I was raised in a home with a saved mother and an unsaved father. He was a good, moral man to his family, but unsaved nonetheless. I began going to church when I was 11 with my mother. I enjoyed Sunday school. I enjoyed the class, uh, the friends there. I enjoyed my teachers. And uh, I believe I made a profession of faith at that time. But that's a long time ago now, and I'm just not sure any longer if that was real. I know there was very little fruit in my life during my high school days, and there wasn't much assurance of salvation. I was always going back and forth, am I, aren't I? And so uh, it was a time that uh, I'm just not sure. But at age 17, just after I'd finished high school, one day two men came to visit my dad from my mom's church, and they were there to present the gospel to him. I was listening in another room, and I thought to myself, oh boy, this is going to be a big waste of time. My dad has never shown the least bit of interest in spiritual things. And as I listened, I was just shocked, because as they unfolded the plan of salvation for my dad, he bowed his head and with tears acknowledged that he was a sinner, asked the Lord to forgive him of his sin, and to come into his heart and be a savior. Well, that shocked me in the next room. And I thought to myself, this is real. What just happened to my dad is real. And I said, that's what I want. And that same day, I made sure by bowing my head and confessing my sins and asking the Lord to save me. A month later, uh, in our church, my dad, my brother and I were all three baptized on the same day. I stayed at home after high school for two years and attended a branch campus of Purdue University. I was majoring in chemistry, and so staying at home, I was able to stay with my local church. I had a very good counselor in my youth pastor. He had a real special interest in me. I'm sure he did with all of his kids, but I felt that he really had an interest in me. And over the two years that I stayed home, he gave me a number of opportunities to speak to the youth group. As far as school goes, I was not progressing very well. I had the ability, but I wasn't applying myself. I was just kind of spinning my wheels, making mediocre grades, and really not that interested whether I ever finished my degree. And my youth pastor took me aside and said, why don't you consider transferring to a Christian school? Finish your undergrad degree there. Get under some discipline. Because, uh, you know, at this point, uh, being kind of an adult, my parents had limited influence over me, even though I was living at home. And uh, I was making my own decisions. And he said, you need some discipline. So where do you go for discipline? Bob Jones University, all right? And so I did. I transferred to Bob Jones, and I completed my undergrad degree in chemistry there. 
part of the requirement for the uh, degree in chemistry was to present a semester-long laboratory research project to the science faculty and to all of the science students. And so I gave that talk, and afterwards, three of the professors came up and uh, complimented me on the presentation and said, we really feel like you have a gift for teaching. And they said, have you ever thought about teaching science in a Christian high school? And I said, no, <laughs> I'd never considered that at all. I was going to be a research chemist for Eli Lilly and Company, who is based in Indianapolis, my hometown. But it really got me thinking. And wouldn't you know, by the following fall, that's what I was doing. I was teaching science in a Christian high school in Michigan. And I stayed there for 26 years, doing basically the same job. I had a few years that I was an administrator, but the bulk of my time was spent teaching chemistry. In our local church there, I had the opportunity to teach an adult Sunday school class for a number of years. I had the 35 to 40-year-olds at the time, and that was a blessing. And at that church, I was under the uh, preaching of two very godly pastors, both of whom were expository preachers. Uh, in fact, uh, Pastor Farrell knows the second one very well, David Doran. And uh, I grew under his ministry a lot. My first wife uh, was diagnosed with cancer in 1995. And of course, that was a very hard time for my family. But that was also a time of growth. It was a time where my faith increased and my trust in the Lord increased. And it was also a time that I got to see firsthand what it means in a local church to love one another. Because that church reached out to us in so many ways, obviously upholding us in prayer for that two-year battle, but uh, helping us financially as well. And uh, just a great time to see a church come together and do that for us. My wife passed away in 1997, two years after the diagnosis. And a year later, I married Becky, whom I had known as a teaching colleague there for many years. In fact, she taught my two boys in sixth grade. I see her sitting with Kyle tonight, so I guess everything's okay by now. Both of us uh, were desiring a move, you know, a fresh start, new marriage. And I'd been looking to move up to the college uh, ranks anyway for some time. So in 1999, we moved down here so that I could be a chemistry professor at CVCC. This move was graciously confirmed by the Lord that this was right for us because neither one of us had ever done anything else but the jobs that we'd had up in Michigan. And we'd never moved around. And so this was brand new for us to come from the north, I don't know if the south, we'll call it the mid-Atlantic at least, but to certainly travel a great distance. But the Lord confirmed this because in three days, we sold our home in Michigan, we bought a home here in Virginia, we found a church home here at Timberlake, we found a Christian school for Kyle, he was a 10th grader at the time, and a job for Becky, 
as the elementary principal. All in three days. That was amazing. Here at Timberlake, uh, I've been privileged to serve in many different ways. Uh, at first, I taught a singles class for a few years. I've served as a deacon for six years. I've done a number of short-term mission trips uh, over uh, six summers. Uh, I held pastor's conferences and did preaching in Nicaragua on the island of Ometepe. And that was sponsored uh, by our church. They helped support me and by Allow the Children Ministries. For the past 12 years, I've been teaching uh, seniors in an adult Sunday school class here. I retired from my job in 2019, and so I began to think about greater opportunities here in the church when, wouldn't you know it, in July after I retired, Pastor Farrell uh, approached me and asked if I would consider being a non-vocational elder. I was very hesitant at first, and I told him so. I just did not know if I would be able to say with a whole heart the very first verse of the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3. Because the first verse says, if anyone desires the office of overseer or pastor or elder, he desires a noble task. And I said, I don't know if I have the desire. I don't know if I have the call. Uh, because I grew up in a scenario, uh, as a boy at least, uh, where there was one senior pastor and he was a one-man staff. And I always envisioned that as what a pastor was. And so it caught me by surprise, but I thought about it. And then Pastor Farrell gave me some good insight to it. He said, you know, you're shepherding already. You're already pastoring. You're pastoring your Sunday school class, your small group there, the seniors. And he said, what this is going to represent is a bigger responsibility and a greater task because now I would be helping to shepherd an entire congregation. And so I agreed to it. And for the last two years, I've been attending pastoral meetings, and I've been learning from our three elders for these past two years. And so now I'm looking forward to the opportunity to serve the body here in this new capacity as a non-vocational elder. Now, if you would, uh, turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to read to you the first 10 verses of that chapter and then speak to you for a few minutes regarding that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, 
Not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. While this passage may be more precious to seniors or to those who have experienced much pain and suffering in this life, it's something that should resonate with every child of God. Regardless of our health, regardless of our age, regardless of our circumstance, there's something in the believer that yearns for our eternal home with the Lord. Solomon said it this way, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart. God made man for eternal purposes, and nothing in this life since the fall can bring us complete satisfaction. Part of that yearning for eternity involves receiving an eternal glorified body. Paul was longing for heaven. He stated this a number of times in his ministry. One occasion was in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Please turn there if you would. Philippians 1, 21. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. One aspect of glory that was on his mind as he penned our text for tonight was his obtaining an eternal glorified body. Of all men, Paul felt daily the limitations of his physical body. Listen to this amazing listing that he makes over in 2 Corinthians 11. You're welcome to turn there. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 23. But I think just listening to this really has an impact on us. This is Paul speaking of himself. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger of rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, 
danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow. Can you see why he might be interested in heaven? And remember, all this had already occurred before a two-year imprisonment in Caesarea and before yet another shipwreck on the way to Rome. He knew the fragility of the human body. Turn back a chapter from our text tonight, 2 Corinthians 4. By the way, a lot of chapter 4 is a good preface for what happens in chapter 5. But I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul understanding the fragility of this body. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, while the verse certainly uses the illustration of a clay jar to emphasize the base nature of our bodies, they're cheap, they're easily replaceable, they have no intrinsic value. But it also illustrates that fragile, breakable nature of the body. He goes on in verses 8 through 12 of this chapter to expand on this notion that our bodies are frail. You're already there, so just drop right down to the next verse. Look at verses 8 through 12 with me. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now, with all that said, Paul was far from being a pessimist. Drop on down now to verse 16, same chapter. He says, in light of all this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He kept up his confidence, even as he noticed the increasing wear and tear on his body. His perspective was one of contrasting the temporal and earthly, with that which is eternal and heavenly. The two are not even worthy of a comparison. As he continues now, look at verse 17. For this light affliction, excuse me, I was going the old King James, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. His spiritual eyes were set on things that are not presently seen. 
his spiritual eyes were on his eternal glorified body. That's to be the attitude of all those that name the name of Christ as Savior. I just read last week that Mark Rick, former head coach of the Georgia football team, announced on Twitter that he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Listen to what he had to say. Truthfully, I look at it as a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for promising us a future blessing of a glorified body that has no sin and no disease. Quite a testimony. Paul now is going to expand on this theme as we go back to our passage. So if you would, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Paul says, for we know. Paul does not just have a vague wish, but he has a settled fact of Scripture. Notice our verses here on the screen. And I want to emphasize the idea that it's a fact, not just a wish. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We shall, we shall. Look also at Philippians 3.21 with me. Who, Jesus Christ, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul had no doubt at all. Jesus was going to transform him. Paul also says here in this first verse, if, not when. He viewed the return of the Lord as imminent in his day. He might still be alive. When addressing the rapture with the Thessalonian church, he writes, then we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Notice in the first verse, he then goes on to call our physical body a tent, the soul's temporary home. Peter uses the same metaphor over in his second epistle. Just as the tabernacle of Israel's wanderings was replaced by a permanent building during the reign of Solomon, the tent of the believer will one day be replaced in heaven with an imperishable body. 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. A tent is a good illustration for the body, as it can be taken down or dismantled. It's a temporary abode. The heavenly body, on the other hand, is called a building, suggesting something fixed, secure, permanent. It's not like a procreated earthly body. 
The expression in this verse, not made with hands, that's explained over in the book of Hebrews, where the writer says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So the author equates not made with hands with not of this creation. It is a completely different body. Paul was weary of the frustrations, the disappointments, the limitations, and the weakness of this present life. Look at his language in verse 2. He groans or sighs. He has a longing or a yearning. He longed for the revelation of the sons of God. Listen to his passage in Romans 8. He says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That Romans passage has the same two words that we have in 2 Corinthians 5 two, A longing, a yearning, and a groaning for heavenly things. Eternal things are worthy of our consideration and should motivate us to serve Christ in hope. Verse 3 begins with the words in ESV, if indeed. I like here what the NASB translated it, inasmuch as. Let me read it that way. Verse 3, inasmuch as, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. This helps carry the thought along and means that since verse 2 is true, he will put on a new body and will not be naked. Now, this hope was in contrast to the dualism that permeated Greek culture. That philosophy taught that matter was evil and spirit alone was good. So the goal of its adherents was to be freed from the body and to become disembodied spirits. William Barclay writes concerning this, Greek and Roman thinkers despised the body. They said it was a tomb With Paul, there's a difference. He's not looking for a nirvana with a piece of extinction. He's not looking for absorption into the divine. He's not looking for the freedom of a disembodied spirit. He's waiting for the day when God will give him a new body, a spiritual body in which he will still be able, even in the heavenly places, to serve and adore God. In verse 4, Paul repeats his thought from verse 2, we groan, and now he adds, we are burdened or weighed down. Paul used this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in a different context. Notice Paul said, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired 
of life itself. That's what Paul means by being burdened, being in this body. It has the idea of almost being crushed. The burden of affliction that life in this mortal body involves. Paul says he wanted to be swallowed up. He wants to be swallowed up in life, eternal life. That's the same terminology he uses again in uh, the 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In both cases, the idea is to be consumed by it. Paul wants to be consumed, swallowed up by life. And, of course, he means the fullness and perfection of eternal life. When believers will be like their Lord. Turn to 1 John 3.2. This is a reference Jeff was sharing with us just a week ago. 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In verse 5, Paul talks about our future being prepared by God, and it will unfold according to his plan and his will. He says, for this very thing, or for this very purpose, our glorified bodies are a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan from all eternity. Turn over to Romans 8 and verse 29. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you notice there use of the past tense? It is so sure that we are to be glorified that Paul expresses it as if it's already taken place. That's assurance that God is going to fulfill his purpose. In fact, God's ultimate purpose in salvation is glorification when believers become conformed to the image of his son. There's been a guarantee of this. There's been a pledge, a down payment that this is going to be fulfilled. Just like it's discussed in Ephesians 1. This is probably a more familiar verse to you. Who, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It is the indwelling spirit that is God's promise that his ultimate purpose for believers will be fulfilled. Listen as I read Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. By supplying believers with the Holy Spirit, 
God has given us a foretaste of the life to come. He's created a longing for full realization. And he's guaranteed that the rest will come, such as a glorified body. Now here at the halfway point, Paul begins verse 6 with so or therefore. And so he's wanting us to reflect back on verses 1 through 5 as he now moves forward. He says, based on what we have covered so far, he says, therefore, he was always of good courage, even in the face of death, because it would result in his being with the Lord. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. While we're alive physically, there is a sense that we are absent from the Lord. But it's only in a comparative sense with when we'll be in glory. He says back in 1 Corinthians 13, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And even now, we still have prayer, the Spirit's indwelling, and the Word of God for communion with God during this life. Verse 7 is very familiar to us, and it's a parenthetical statement here. It enlarges on the nature of this present life, which is away from the Lord. For now, the blessed realities of the life to come must be accepted by faith. Because Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Since the Holy Spirit brings inner conviction and assurance, the walk by faith is a reasonable one. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, the writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 8, Paul repeats his truth from verse 6, that he's always positive toward the future, despite the constantly looming reality of death. He understood the brief temporary time on earth as a stranger's experience. James says that this life is like a vapor that appears for a brief time. And Hebrews says that Old Testament saints acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Heaven is our true and permanent home. He says in verse 8 that he would rather be at home with the Lord. He longs for the nearness to God as well as the glory of a new body. As we read earlier in Philippians, my desire is to be with Christ. So in verse 9, he says, we make it our aim or our ambition to please the Lord, regardless of our state, whether home or away. This is best understood in the sense that whether he is living and raptured or resurrected from the dead, Paul's aim is to live now in a way that pleases the Lord. The noblest and highest ambition to which anyone can aspire is to be pleasing to the Lord. 
Look at these references that encourage the believer. Whoops, I think I want one too many. Yep. These passages talking about pleasing the Lord. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But the word actually is the word pleasing. Pleasing to God. And Paul says, that's your spiritual worship. That's our goal, to please the Lord. Two others, Ephesians 5.10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of of God. Paul fulfilled his objective. He pleased the Lord because he could honestly report, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So down to verse 10, why is it so important to live a life pleasing to the Lord? Paul says because rewards are to be won. The scriptures mention a number of crowns that the believer can receive from the Lord. There's a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, a crown of life in James 1, a crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, and an incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9. Whether these are literal crowns or not, they're certainly symbolic of rewards that believers receive at the judgment seat of Christ. These are the same rewards mentioned in Revelation 4, where the 24 elders cast their crowns at the feet of the Savior, indicating that the rewards are due to his grace, not their inherent worthiness. In this 10th verse, Paul uses strong terms like must, all, to emphasize his motivation to please God in this life. Paul says we must all appear. This means to make manifest, to make clear, to reveal, and actually deeper than that. Philip Hughes writes, to be made manifest means not just to appear, but to be laid bare, stripped of every outward facade of respectability and openly revealed in the full and true reality of one's character. This aligns well with Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat as you've probably heard it mentioned. This was a raised platform used for rewarding victorious athletes or for rendering legal decisions. Corinth had a Bema seat in its agora, its marketplace. A person was brought to the seat to have his deeds examined for indictment or exoneration. Of course, believers will not be judged for sin at this seat, 
Romans 8.1 clearly states that all sin of believers was judged at the cross. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This judgment is for deeds done after salvation in the body while the believer is alive. These deeds are called good and bad or good and worthless. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, where the difference between good and bad is discussed in some detail. 1 Corinthians 3, 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as by fire. While this is a judgment of deeds, it still carries a seriousness that should not be minimized. Note Paul says, saved so as by fire, suggesting a sobering experience. So we are to look forward to receiving our glorified bodies and rejoice in the promise that one day we will be with the Lord. But at the same time, be conscious that this life does matter and that we are to be about the Lord's work here on earth and preparing for a judgment of works on that day. Paul expressed it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we an imperishable. So I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And may we do likewise as the apostle. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. It has such great promise for us, whether we're young or old, whether we're in perfect health or whether we suffer. We all know that this body is temporary. We know it to be a tent. And we do yearn for a building something permanent in the heavens that will allow us to be like you and will allow us to be with you for all eternity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it gives. Thank you for the privilege to be able to share it tonight. I thank you for this church, whoever's up here, preaches the word of God and sticks to the scripture. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for these people that you've called together to be this body at Timberlake. I pray now that you would uh, dismiss us, that you would give us safety on our way home. Pray for this week 
that uh, we would live for you and that we would take with us uh, these truths uh, from this passage. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.